Our reading today is from Revelation chapter 5, verse 1 through 14. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. And I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice, they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshiped. This is God's word. Good morning. morning. You would turn your Bibles to uh, the book of Revelation that was just read, uh, chapter 5. let us pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together in your presence. And we pray a special presence from you and from your spirit that Christ indeed dwell with us today. Give us, Father, ears to hear, hearts to believe, and a will to obey. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As I was preparing this lesson, a certain incident in my own life kept coming to mind. And I think I struggled with that more than I did with preparing the lesson. I didn't struggle because it wasn't true. I know it's true because I was there. But I struggled because I did not want to give the wrong impression. 
By this story, I'm not saying I'm a man of great faith, for I am not. Nor am I saying in some way I'm a great Christian, for I truly feel that I am least of all the saints. But I'm telling the story because it illustrates something of what I want to say this morning. It was 40 years ago, yes, 40 years, I was worshiping uh, in Conroe, Texas with a larger congregation, and the elders approached me, even though I was a new Christian, the elders approached me and said they thought that I had been called to the ministry. That was, of course, a shock to me. I had no intention of entering into the ministry, but they said to me, we will support you, we will support your family, we will send you to school. Now, I wanted to learn more of the Word of God, so I agreed, yes, I will go. So I moved with my wife and three children to Lubbock, Texas, where I entered what is now called Sunset International Bible Institute. Now, Sunset was not a regular seminary, as we might think of one. It really was a boot camp. I'm sure it's changed over the years, but back then it was just a boot camp. As sometimes I wondered, even if the instructors were Christians, they were hard on you. It was a boot camp to produce preachers and missionaries. And I guess they did a pretty good job. They have graduates in all 50 states. They have graduates serving in 114 different nations. And I was a student there. And one night I was sitting in a library, as I often did. Now, the library closed at 10 o'clock at night. I had to be out. The doors locked automatically. I'm the only one in the building when a man walked into the library. He had just come from an AA meeting. He was kind of a scraggly guy, but not really, just kind of a normal fellow, a big guy, and he wanted to talk with me. I explained to him, I really can't talk right now. I mean, I, I, the library's closing, you know. He, I asked him where I could meet him or what not, and he said, well, I'm walking home, and I said, well, I'll give you a ride. We can talk in the car. So I drove him to his apartment, and then he invited me upstairs. Now, it's after 10 o'clock. My wife doesn't know where I am, but I reluctantly went upstairs. And for the next two hours, we talked. I talked to him about Jesus. I preached Christ unto him. I preached Christ and him crucified. And he would just turn around and begin talking about the Vietnam War, how terrible it was, about drugs and alcohol addiction. And then I would go back. I would tell him about Jesus. We went back and forth, back and forth. For some two hours, we went back and forth. I'm finally thinking, well, I've got to be at chapel at 7 in the morning. My wife doesn't know where I am, so I'm going to give it one more shot. And so I said, you're not even listening to me. And I gave it to him again. And something I said in that moment made him extremely angry. I mean, he was angry. And he jumped up, yelled at me, went down the hallway, disappeared into a room. I got up and thought, well, that didn't go so well. So I started walking towards the front door. I was four or five feet away when a man came out into the hallway and he was carrying, not a club, but he was carrying a stick. It looked like a sawed-off cue stick. And he began coming down the hallway towards me, yelling and holding it in the air. Well, at a moment like that, your mind goes into hyperdrive and I began to think, what am I going to do? And I knew right away one thing I could not do was take him. There was no way that I could physically stop this man. Even without the stick, I could not have stopped him. 
And the other thing I thought is, maybe I can make it to the door. But if I turn my back on him, he'd be on me before I got out the door. And what if he only wanted to scare me? Then what would happen? Here I'd be running down the stairs out into the Lubbock night with my Bible flapping while he stood up there laughing at me, laughing at Christianity, laughing at Christ. No, I couldn't do that. So what I did was I just stood there. I stood there with my Bible in my left hand, and I looked at him. I stared at him as he came towards me. He got up in my face, he pulled back the stick, and he said to me, you're not afraid. And then he dropped the stick and began to cry. And I reached out and I grabbed him in a big hug, and something of what I'd been saying came home to his heart. Now he said something that was wrong. He said, you're not afraid. I'm going to tell you something. I was terrified. <laughs> it's not a matter of being afraid. I was terrified. Now, to be true to what I'm saying today, I believe that God is sovereign. God, God is in control. Things could have turned out differently. I wasn't going to back down. I wasn't going to run away. He may have just been trying to scare me. I don't know. Uh, he may indeed have beaten me or something even worse. But I was going to stand firm. And I thank God that what happened did happen. We are people sometimes who are prone to worry and to fear. That's why Jesus again and again cautions us, encourages us not to worry, not to be afraid. And the writers of the New Testament bring it up over and over again. Fear not. Don't be afraid. Do not worry. Trust God. Lean upon him. Look to him over and over. But we are people who are prone to being afraid and to being worried, especially today in the time in which we live. Christianity and Christian values are under attack in ways I've never seen in my lifetime and is only escalating. We have become a violent nation with mass shootings happen at a rate unprecedented in history. We have had, as of May 7, 202 mass shootings in the United States. I look it up, and if my research is right, 40 years ago, we had one. One. Politically, the nation is in disarray. And I sometimes feel like I did when that man approached me with a stick. It seems that all I treasure most is under attack. But how are we to respond? The book of Revelation has something to say to us on this important subject. I want you to note, first of all, in verse 4. Here, the Apostle John says this, So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or look at it. Now consider that. Here is the Apostle John, the one who walked with Jesus, the one who was called the beloved of Christ, the one who saw him all the way to the cross, the one who saw the resurrected Lord, the one who was endowed with the Holy Spirit in wonderful ways, who helped to establish the first century church. And where does he find himself? Here it is at the end of the first century, and from his standpoint, it almost looks like Christianity has been a great failure. Here he is on the island of Patmos. 
He is there because of the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ and because of the word of God. Here he is virtually a prisoner because of what he has preached and he is weeping. Why is he weeping? Because he does not know what's going to happen to Christianity. All that he's given his life for, all that he cared so much for, all that he looked forward to, all the things that he preached and taught, is it all going to come to nothing? And he wept deeply about it. The church was undergoing intense persecution and it seemed to the eyes of the flesh that Christianity was a failure and that the world had triumphed. But here in the book of Revelation, he, is, he was given to us these great visions through John that are intended to encourage the church to fear not. Now I'm going to say something about the book of Revelation, and that is all these different visions found in the book are not all easy to understand. Good people disagree on what particular uh, visions mean, but the message of the book of Revelation is a very, very simple message. Don't get caught up in all the details to such a degree that you fail to see the message. The message of the book of Revelation is victory in Jesus. It is victory in Jesus. The world throws everything it can at the church. The devil comes against the church. False religion comes against the church. And in the midst of it all, Jesus brings his people through to ultimate victory. And with that in mind, I want to just quickly, because I know you have a meeting at the church, mention three truths that are contained in this chapter. First of all, the meaning of the scroll. In verse 1, And I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll, written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Now the scroll is basically the writing of history. It contains God's eternal purpose and the destiny of the world. The seals are the events that will occur from the first century until Jesus comes again. But mark this, the scroll is in the hands of God the Father. He is handing it over to the Son. And that scroll is the history of the world. The history of the world. The purposes of God cannot ever fail. God is in control. Listen to what Isaiah said. Or God speaking through Isaiah. For I am God, and there is none else. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things that are not yet done, and saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. Mm. My counsel shall stand, declaring the end from the beginning, all that is to take place. His counsel will stand, and nothing can stop his counsel from taking place. In Acts 15 and verse 18, it says, Known to God are all his works from the foundation of the earth. We may be surprised, we may be in disarray, we may be in confusion, but God is not. Known to God are all his works. I guess that includes us, doesn't it? Known to God are all his works from the foundation of the world. Now Christ himself is uniquely qualified to open the scroll and to loose its seals. He is the one who is qualified to unfold history and the judgment and salvation of the world. 
Now, how is he qualified? I mean, they looked everywhere. You look on earth, look in heaven, look all around, all kinds of angels, all kinds of people. But no one else is qualified. The qualification rests with Christ. In verses 6 and again in verse 9, it is pointed out that he stood as a lamb as it had been slain. He is indeed the sacrificial lamb with all that implies. Why is he qualified? He is a lamb standing as though he had been slain. In this we have the incarnation. God becoming flesh, coming into the world, entering into our human experience. In this we have his sinless life, the lamb without spot, without blemish. In this we see him moving among men, talking with men, teaching men. We see his death upon the cross under the wrath of God for our sins and his resurrection and now reigning as Lord. Jesus himself said in chapter 1 and verse 18, I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, amen, and have the keys of Hades and death. He is qualified because he is a sacrificial lamb. He is the only one who ever has, ever could bear the sins of the world. He stood there in our place. He endured the wrath due us, and through him we find forgiveness. He is qualified, for he is a lamb. But he is also qualified because, as he says in verse 5, he is a lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, and has prevailed. Now this signifies kingly authority. In fact, the whole scene in chapter 5 is like a coronation. If you go back and read chapter 4, chapter 4 focuses upon heaven, but it focuses upon God the Father. God the Father in control. God the Father being worshipped. And yet here in this section, God the Father is handing over to the Son the ability to take care of, or the authority to take care of the unfolding of history. He is the one who has prevailed. He is the one who is now King of kings and Lord of lords and rules over the affairs of the world. In Matthew chapter 28, in verse 18, it says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. How much authority? All authority. Every single square inch of this universe is ruled over by Jesus Christ. And then also we see in this qualification is that he has poured out the Holy Spirit into the world. Verse 6, having seven horns, Jesus having seven horns. No, that's, a, that's an image. It's a picture. The horn signifies power. The horn signifies authority. And then not only that, it says, and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the world. Now the number seven denotes perfection or completeness. I do not believe this is saying that there are seven individual spirits that have been sent out everywhere into the world. I believe it is a description of the Holy Spirit who has been sent out to the very ends of the earth. The Holy Spirit who himself is perfect and ever present within this world. So who is it that's qualified to unveil what is happening within this world? 
who is in charge of the history of the world, who is in charge of making things happen, who is in charge of the salvation of individuals and the judgment of the world. It is the Lamb. It is the King of the tribe of Judah. It is the one who has poured out of his spirit upon this world. And the second thing I would say briefly is that Christ is worthy of all praise. Not only is he the one who has all authority and all power, the one who holds history in his hands, but he also is worthy of all praise. Let me read to you again verses 11 through 14. They deserve to be read. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders. And the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. Notice that about the angels. Here they are around the throne. Tens of thousands, thousands upon thousands. And what are they doing? They are worshiping. They are saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard them saying, blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Notice that worship. That worship begins there at the throne of God with the angels and the elders and the four living creatures. It begins there, but what does it do? It radiates outward into the ends of the earth. It radiates completely outward. The Lamb is worthy to be worshipped. Are we worshiping people? <clears throat> Are we people given to praise and to prayer? A.W. Tozer, one of my favorite writers, once wrote something to the effect that it would do the church good if it stopped all activity for a time and gave themselves to worship and prayer. And I believe as there's some truth in that, sometimes we get too busy. Too busy to worship. Too busy to pray. And may we be found people of praise and prayer. And then the final thing I will point out is that Christ calls us to participate. In Revelation chapter 5, it says that not only has he redeemed people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation, but it also says he made them into very special kinds of people. It says that he made them kingdom, a kingdom, and he made them priests. Now, every true child of God is part of his kingdom. Colossians 1 verse 13 says, He has delivered us from the domain or the power of darkness, has conveyed us into the kingdom of his Son. That's taking place right now. If you're a child of God, you're a kingdom child. It does not yet appear what we will be, for it says we shall one day reign upon the earth. But right now we're still part of God's spiritual kingdom. Part of that kingdom redeemed by the blood of Christ and indwelt by his Holy Spirit. He calls us to kingdom living, to being kingdom people. And then he says that we are priests. The priesthood is not just for a few. Every single believer is a priest. 
Now there's but one high priest, and that's Jesus Christ. He is the mediator between God and man. But every single child of God is also a priest. All Christians are priests under him. We serve in his presence, our great and glorious God. As priests, we intercede for the world with our God by our prayers. For this is a confused and lost world. And I'll say something about the prayers. If you notice in chapter 5, it talks about the bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Every prayer you ever utter is there before the throne of God. It is there as sweet incense in worship and praise unto God. And as priests, we are there to intercede for this world. Who else would pray for the world? Sometimes I run across someone, a young person or someone else, who is deeply troubled, and I give myself in prayer to them. And I always think the same thing. Maybe no one has ever prayed for that individual. Isn't it a sad thing to think that there are people living on the face of this earth that no one, no one has ever prayed for? Not a mother, not a father, not an individual, not a friend. They go through this world without ever having been prayed for. And we are priests unto God. Our calling is one of prayer and of intercession for the world before the throne of Almighty God. But that's not all. As priests, we intercede with the world by living out the Christian life and sharing his word with mankind. The world desperately needs a word from God. And we are in a unique position to provide that. And if the Christian does not provide it, there is no one else to provide it. You can't look anywhere else for that word. But through God's word, the Holy Spirit, and God working in us and through us. In these confusing and desperate times, it sometimes seems that the world is coming at us with a stick in its hand, trying to frighten us into retreat. May it never be so. In Ephesians 6, when describing the armor of God, Paul says three times, Stand. Stand, therefore. Stand. We must take our stand against the devil and against this ungodly world. And I'm not saying we do nothing, quite the contrary. When that man came at me, I wasn't doing nothing. It may appear like I was doing nothing, but I guarantee you I was praying. I was inwardly praying for God to work in that situation. There is a time to speak out and have our voices heard. There is a time for activity even political activity, when moral issues are at stake. But when we engage in activity, even political activity, we must remember that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're not of this flesh. But the weapons of our warfare are spiritual. But it's so important in these times that we stand with God through Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. Thank you.